thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. So talk about swimming. I get distracted easily, you see, so I went from obesity surgery to swimming. Um, but there is a system there somewhere. So, I mean, I think we're all very familiar with this idea that within dominant medical and health policy frameworks, fatness is, is predominantly conceptualized as a threat of epidemic proportions to health and well-being and as something against which action should be taken. And within this framework, fat bodies end up being understood as the embodied consequence of negative traits such as laziness, greed, and poor self-discipline, certainly in the kind of popular representations of unmanaged fatness. So from this perspective, the fat body cannot be a sporting body, since socially privileged traits such as the reflexive self-discipline and body, bodily boundaries and appetites are strongly associated with the production of contemporary sporting bodies that are conventionally treated as antithetical to fatness. And of course I'm oversimplifying since ideal sporting body size and composition varies enormously across sports. And you can think of things like uh, sumo, rugby, wrestling and a lot of field sports that demand both fat and muscular bulk in ways that challenge our conventional stereotype of the good sporting body. Nevertheless, I think we can say that lean, taut embodiment remains most easily socially coded as sporting, as athletic. And the morally privileged antithesis, therefore, to the presumed moral failures of fatness. Perhaps the exception here, the linking point, and it's, is, is the point where sport and fat align very comfortably um, in the, the prescription of sport and physical activity in the normative practice of fighting fat. So embodied in the familiar anti-obesity rhetorics of eat less, exercise more, Sport and physical activity are widely perceived as part of the solution to the problem, the supposed problem of obesity, a means of burning energy to produce the calorie deficit that's so prized in the energy balance model of weight management. So what then would this mean for the sport of marathon swimming, which actively demands the acquisition or minimally the maintenance of body fat as a performance advantage? How are legitimate endurance swimming identities and sporting identities constructed, contested, and embodied in such a seemingly paradoxical context of a fat athlete? Marathon swimming, for those who don't know about the sport, is the minor, it's a very minority sport, um, largely amateur sport of swimming a long way slowly in accordance with tradition-oriented rules. By a long way, what counts as a long way in a sport. I'm talking about swims of a su sufficient scope or scale for that to be the only thing you do that day. So sometimes literally, so swims of 10 hours, uh, sometimes even 20 plus hours. In a nostalgic nod, if arbitrary nod, to the conditions of the first English Channel swim. So this is Matthew Webb, who was the first person to swim the channel in 1875. And this is Gertrude Ederley, who was the first woman to swim the channel. Um, in 1926. Um, so in a, in a sort of nod to the conditions of these first swims in the late 19th, early 20th century, the rules of contemporary marathon swimming limit swimmers to a regular textile costume, cap, and goggles. And they disallow any purposeful contact, supportive or propulsive contact with a boat or with another person. The English Channel is, is perhaps the iconic marathon swim, the exemplar. Uh, it's 21 miles across at its narrowest point. 
Um, but this kind of just stands in for a really kind of a burgeoning global roster of long swims that people have on their CVs and bucket lists, to-do lists, around channels, straits, bays, lakes, along rivers and around islands. For most endurance sports, the normative mutual exclusivity of fitness and fatness has a kind of common sense reinforcement by the fact that leanness for endurance sport generally offers a performance advantage by maximizing power to weight ratio and increasing speed and agility. And that's not to say that you can't do those sports without being lean and taut, but it does provide a performance advantage. But in marathon swimming, alongside swim-specific muscularity, um, swimming technique and so on, body fat itself as fat is prized for its insulating properties. So it enables you to stay in cold water for longer. And this is what distinguishes it from something like sumo or wrestling or field sports, where it's heft that matters. It could be fat or it could be muscle. But with swimming, it has to be fat to work as an insulating uh, function. It's not the only strategy for managing cold. Um, the body's thermoregulatory systems can be made to adapt to cold in a variety of different ways through regular immersion to cold water. It changes your body's responses to the water, although always in quite limited and idiosyncratic, unpredictable ways. It's also very uncertain. There's a very small number of studies um, that don't produce any kind of solid information. It's very unclear how much fat is enough fat to protect you from cold, and it's very different from person to person as well. But nevertheless, in spite of the uncertainty, the basic principle ideas and weight gain, however arbitrary and degree, and we're talking about fat gain here, not muscle gain, is a common part of training for many swimmers. But what I'm trying to say in this paper is that the social potency of fat um, means that this weight gain can never only be experienced in instrumental terms however reflexively framed by the body's vulnerabilities to cold. Now, my background is really in critical obesity studies, fat studies. Um, and when I first started thinking about swimming fat, um, as a swimmer, a fat woman, and via this allegiance to fat studies and critical obesity studies, I approached this topic in a mood of, uh, frankly, of political optimism. Um, I was excited by the discovery of a sporting site that appeared to directly repudiate the conventionally competing values of fitness and fatness that I found so problematic, personally and professionally. However, a closer inspection of this revealed a much more complicated relationship with fat that simultaneously comprises a profound allegiance to the rhetorics of bodily discipline and control, a strong antipathy towards fat, and simultaneously a contingent valuing and celebration of it. This apparently contradictory embrace and repudiation is held together for many swimmers, and especially those coming from a formerly lean athletic and body identity, particularly people coming from triathlon, for example, into marathon swimming. And this is held together through what I'm calling heroic fatness. So through heroic fatness, swimming fat is framed as an undesirable but necessary act of bodily discipline and sacrifice in the service of swimming. It renders purposeful swimming fat a transformative bodily sacrifice that aligns easily with a sport like marathon swimming, which is already strongly self-identified and self-defined in terms of suffering, enduring, and overcoming, which is the predominant narrative that the sport tells of itself. So fat then becomes just another form of suffering that adds to, adds to the others, nobly born. 
But my use of, of, of heroic is ironic, um, since the construction of purposeful fatness as courageously self-sacrificial obscures the necessary not meanness of the fat that immunizes the heroically fat swimmer against the negative stigma of real fatness. In essence, like medical fat suits that you may have seen, where people can supposedly experience, they can experience what fatness feels like. Like medical fat suits designed for training or health education, we could also think about dramatic fat suits or purposeful weight gain for a film role. Um, I want to argue that swim, heroic swimming fat is rendered safely inauthentic by its presumed provisionality and incongruity. So in short, the swimming fat is fake. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The not meanness of heroic fatness then reveals little of the reflexive critique of the war on obesity that I was hoping I'd find, but it does still have a lot to say, however inadvertently I think, about what Hardy calls the world of constitutive affective relations, affective relations with fatness. Heroic fatness, I argue, is articulated through explicit narratives of neither health nor physiological function, and nor is it constituted through straightforwardly formless function rationalizations in relation to cold tolerance. Instead, it operates in a primarily affective register. I argue that these affective dimensions of swimming fat elucidate both the profoundly entrenched and embodied nature of learned responses to fat, and the uncontainability of fat within the narrow constraints of the, the prevailing rhetorics of the war on obesity and its very utilitarian appropriations by and of sport. So I'm going to talk very briefly about the methodology um, for the, the broader project that I'm drawing on. And then the paper itself is divided into two parts. So the first part kind of sets out the ideal type of heroic fatness um, to show how that works. And then the second part looks at some more ambivalent modes of fatness that come out sort of in the spaces that sort of seeping out in the spaces between this ideal type that I think tells us quite a lot about the way we see fatness and physical activity. And methodologically, um, I called the project an auto-ethnography. Um, this is where I did, I did most of the field work from the van. Um, so I, <laughs> I lived in the van for a couple of summers. Um, and so the project started life as a study specifically of English Channel swimming and, and then evolved into a much broader study of marathon swimming as a transnational embodied social practice. And over a period of almost three years, I kept very detailed field, field notes, um, which included incorporating my own experience, experiences of training to swim the English Channel in 2010, as well as conducting what Loic Wacom calls observant participation um, in a range of training sites um, so that's Dover, which there's a huge training community in Dover. I spend a lot of time there. The English Channel community um, is very much located there. It very rarely looks as nice as that. This is Malta, where I worked. At, I swam. I did long-distance training camps. I also worked as a guide um, on the training camps there as well. This is Ireland, where there's another big training camp there, big swimming community. And then the best bit was I went to Southern California, where there are two big training communities in San Diego and San Francisco. And so I sort of hung out there, swimming, talking to people and generate all things swimming. Um, I also looked at online forums, social media, published autobiographical accounts, um, as much as I could get my hands on really um, about the swimming. It's quite difficult doing ethnographic and autoethnographic work on something that you're so personally invested in um, and that you're actually physically doing. I can talk more about that if people have questions about the sort of doing of it. But I have to say that it has been an enormous kind of pleasure and privilege to do it as well. And um, 
one of the most pleasing aspects of it, the Guardian wrote an article about the project when I first got the grant, and they referred to me as an aquatic sociologist, which <laughs> I would pay money to have on my office door. <laughs> um, I'm writing a book on this at the moment called Immersion, um, but I also have a, I keep a blog on something called The Long Swim, uh, which I've been keeping really since 2009 when I started training, and there's also a project website called Becoming a Channel Swimmer that has lots of the outputs and papers and stuff. If you, if you want to drop in, leave some comments, you'd be very welcome to hear your stories. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the, the ideal type of heroic fatness first, how that works, how it gets made. And there are two elements to this. The first is its status as undesirable but necessary. And secondly, the presumed malleability of the body. Okay. So as an undesirable necessity, if we think about amid all these certainties that how, about how much fat is enough, there's a singular certainty that emerges, and that is that fat is necessary if undesirable. Okay. And this is encapsulated in the very commonly circulating maxim, you can't be too vain to gain if you want to swim the channel, which of course presumes that fat in itself is ugly and unattractive, and that it would therefore involve vanity. For many swimmers coming to the sport from other endurance sports where leanness tends to be valued, the concept of purposeful weight gain was an anathema to a sporting identity. And so Simon, for example, was um, an experienced and very accomplished ultra-endurance athlete and climber, mountaineer, and he had a relatively lean athletic body that made him very vulnerable to the cold. And he tried to swim the English Channel early in the season of 2010, and hadn't been successful because of very serious hypothermic sort of uh, response. So then he, he kind of basically fed up for, for a couple of months. And he says, I was fit enough to swim, but it just seemed so gloriously unfair that with swimming, well, with channel swimming, it's almost the opposite. So he's talking about his previous sporting life. Because in other sports, the fitter you are, the leaner you are, the more muscular you are, is improved performance. And it just seems so alien to be on the one hand just, um, that should be banging out, not ganging out, it's a very different thing, um, banging out as much swim time as possible. But on the other hand, you know, eating five donuts a day, getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning, having a fry out before you go to work, eating lots of chocolate. Okay. And he was kind of crash weight gaining at this point. He identifies body fat as one of a number of sport-specific requirements, but it's the need for weight gain that he, he singles out as unfair okay, and at odds with other sports. And he experiences this as a tension not only between his endurance sporting past and his swimming present, but also within swim training itself. It doesn't sit comfortably. He never talked about health in his objections to, to weight gain. It was never raised as a factor, but his dissatisfaction registered affectively as disgust and horror, both at the body fat itself, but also the process of fattening. And his daily diet of donuts and fry-ups is, is a far cry from his previous sporting life, which was about high-protein shakes and building lean muscle mass and so on. And as he was talking to me, he gestured an exaggerated rounded belly and blew out his cheeks to make a fat face that. And he exclaimed, and I could just see all the weight coming on with his quite distressed voice. And the suddenness of this exaggerated gestural transformation that he did just echoes this use of fat suits in films, where lean actors perform fatness for what uh, Katie Lebesco calls cheap laughs at the expense of fat people. 
And what this does is simultaneously affirms the inauthenticity of their own provisional factness and also distances themselves then from the real fact, the kind of problem fact. So Simon's fact face then simultaneously recognizes the association with fatness and the failed self and repudiates it in his own case, but not in principle. Fat is a problem, but not the way he's doing it provisionally. And this is the defining accomplishment of heroic fatness. And this relies on two further strategies of distinction. Okay, the first one is a distinction between purposeful fatness, his fatness, and the fatness that comes from having let yourself go. So you've got to make that distinction. The second distinction that needs to be made is between the toughness of fat-facilitated marathon swimming and that of normatively athletic leanness. You set up a hierarchy of toughness, basically. My field notes are punctuated with commentaries from swimmers about the fat bodies of non-swimming others as disgusting, as wrong, as criminal. During a training camp in Malta, a swimmer pointed out to all the other swimmers on the camp, pointed out a man on the beach with his young family whose rounded stomach hung heavily over the waistband of his shorts, remarking laughingly, he'd make a great channel swimmer. This is a very commonly repeated joke that's aimed at non-swimming fat people um, within the community. And it finds its humour, if it's funny, um, in a shared recognition that the body fat of the swimmers and that of the non-swimmers on the beach may be materially similar, but is symbolically different. The non-swimmers have let themselves go, while the swimmers have purposefully made fat happen in order to swim. For all the monolithic anti-fat rhetoric then of the war on obesity, not all fat is equal, and heroic fatness is dependent on careful but precarious distinctions between fatnesses. So the second strategy of distinction is the comparison of marathon swimmers um, with open water swimmers, primarily those who use wetsuits. I put this picture in really because I just love this, that gender always has to matter. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Nobody stands in a wetsuit like this, but apparently you've got to have a thrust of the hip in order to signal the female, the female wetsuit, which I find intriguing. Um, there is a lot of contestation within the swimming community, the marathon swimming community, about whether a wetsuit swim can legitimately be categorised as a real marathon swim. Okay, it's a real bit of territory marking, since neoprene provides both insulation and additional buoyancy. Okay. Among the non-wetsuit faction, and these are quite vociferously fought battles in some quarters, as you can imagine, um, the boundaries of authentic swimming are policed through the use of banter. And so wetsuits, which are often uh, very commonly derided um, through terms such as wimp suits, gimp suits, condoms, these are all highly sexualized, quite homophobic terms that are used to deride wetsuit wearing swimmers. Um, and these are juxtaposed with the marathon swimmers' reliance on what has come to be called bioprene, which is the distinct opposite of neoprene. Um, so that is, bioprene is purposefully gained swimming fat that is morally distinct from both pathologized fatness and neoprene. It has a completely different status. So this strategy of distinction then is also carried over to elite athletes who are repeatedly cited as unable to complete a marathon swim. However great they are, they couldn't do a marathon swim because they're too lean. And so um, US swimmer Robert noted, and this is a quote, when I began to meet channel swimmers, I realized that most successful swimmers were not spelt petite with small hips. 
Michael Phelps could never swim the channel. And Lance Armstrong, before the fall, um, was, was, was another figure that was often cited, like the, the kind of the, the hyper-masculine, alpha-male sporting figure. Lance Armstrong would never be able to swim the channel. Okay, so setting up a hierarchy of, of accomplishments. So in these accounts, the purposefully, fat, the purposefully fat swimming body is distinct from and superior to in, in this hierarchy that's being set up. I don't subscribe to this hierarchy, by the way. I'm observing it rather than <laughs> endorsing it. Um, both, it's superior to both the failed fat body and the elite lean sporting body. It's a strategic reproduction of a fat lean binary that flattens out the complexity and variety of sporting embodiment in order to reinforce the exceptionalism of marathon swimming. This can be seen as both an outward-looking strategy to manage the um, derogated status of fat, of being fat in the world, but also an inward-looking strategy in trying to manage the, the hierarchies and distinctions within open water swimming across different distances and wetsuit and non-wetsuit wearing practices. So swimming fat as bioprene is mobilized here as evidence uh, par excellence of a status-bearing willingness to suffer both in terms of exposure to cold and in terms of the willingness to risk the social stigma of being fat. So in this way, it becomes positioned as enabling and causing suffering, which is then heroically born, which aligns with that framing of the sport. So the second element then of the construction of ideal um, heroic fatness is this idea of the body as malleable. The assumption that weight loss or gain is and should be within the remit of the disciplined individual, and this is very much within kind of mainstream discourses about fat bodies. As one experienced male swimmer who was planning to retire from swimming at the end of the season told me, I'm going to hang up my trunks, get rid of the flab, and go back to running. This assumption of the body's susceptibility to purposeful transformation is completely in line with the contemporary war on obesity and its neoliberal assumptions of the predictable malleability of bodies when subjected to the appropriate level of discipline. The provisionality of the heroically packed swimming body then firmly locates the swimmer within positively valued traits of reflexive self-discipline and self-efficacy because it embodies both the acknowledgement of fatness as contingently necessary but fundamentally undesirable and the presumed ability to lose weight once the challenge has been completed. And it's, it's worth noting that a lot of people were quite shocked when they were then not able to lose the weight that they'd gained, uh, and they misunderstood how weight management kind of works. And this once again invokes um, the fat-suited actor, and also perhaps act actors who gain weight for a role and are often celebrated as heroic. Um, Kathleen Lubesco argues that in both cases of fat suits and purposeful weight gain, um, we're reassured by seeing lean, conventionally attractive actors unencumbered by fatness outside of the film's frames. The inauthenticity of purposefully provisional fake fat, or bioprene, offers the reassurance that the individual is in no danger of a slide into perpetual obesity. As one male US swimmer noted, the fat is okay because it's not who I am. So if we think about how we can unsettle some of this, this narrative, and we can kind of see how that's taken hold, given the, the sort of the framing of how we think of certain bodies. Um, but we can also see it as constantly exposed to disruptions and kind of alternative ambivalent um, understandings coming out. So what I'm going to talk about now is some of these disruptions inherent to this clean simplicity of heroic fatness and talk about its exclusions, particularly in relation to gender um, and also in relation to those who are fat 
at the start of the swimming endeavor rather than becoming fat. So among some groups of men um, in training communities, increased body fat, particularly over a short term like Simon did, rapid weight gain, is a source of considerable humor and banter, and those who gain remarkable amounts of weight over relatively short periods are granted heroic status within the homosocial groups. And there's often lots of kind of challenges of feeding people, there's a lot of sort of feeding behaviors going on. And my field notes recall multiple incidences of men naming their stomachs, so it's time to feed Norman, um, or animating the fat stomach by grasping it with both hands, making a fold, and opening and closing it like a mouth, and ventriloquizing it, saying, feed me, feed me, that kind of thing. So the gesture is designed to invoke disgust at the exaggerated mobility of fat and skin. But the men on the beach domesticate their fat stomachs. They, they make it pet-like, and not them, by naming it as separate. Um, it's in this way that their fat can be understood as fake. To all intents and purposes, they are playing at being fat, whilst being protected from its negative attributions by their cultural and physical capital as athletes, prospective channel swimmers, and as men. We can see it as a very classed form of play, um, since fatness is very strongly aligned with uh, elements of working classness as well, um, and is seen as antithetical to middle class values. As Bev Skeggs notes, middle-class people can play at being working-class, for example, by wearing grunt clothing or listening to certain kinds of music, because they already possess considerable cultural capital that's not threatened by those performances. This behaviour was particularly evident among a relatively small group of laddish young men, and it relies upon a shared understanding of the inauthenticity of their fact, in much the same way that homophobic banter, which there was also a lot of within the group, and sexist banter, um, affirms heterosexuality and, by extension, masculinity. So as such, we can see it as both a celebration and also as a collective defence against the shaming possibilities of weight gain. But many, many of the women I met did, did gain weight in order to swim, but I never once have seen this kind of physical comedy amongst women playing with the fattened body. Um, and no one would actively claim that or talk about how much weight they'd gained in a celebratory way. Uh, women were much more cautious about discussing weight gain, fat gain in the interviews that I did and often located their stories within quite long and often traumatised histories of weight management and struggles with weight and trying to sort of live with a body that they found difficult to manage. Female weight gain is not a route to homosocial belonging in the way that it can be for some men. And swimming weight gain, like muscularity, so you get big shoulders, big neck, big upper back, um, moves women further away from normative fem femininity, whilst at the same time moving men towards normative masculinity. So this was one female interviewee who'd gained quite a lot of weight, um, purposefully, she'd been very lean. Um, and she says that, that she thought of herself as an androgynous person, a machine, while she was training and gaining weight. And I think the important thing here is that there is no readily available affirmative lexicon for female swimming fatness. There is nothing heroic about it, and it's never funny, unlike the male fatness. So instead, for the female swimmers, swimming fat was expressed much more commonly through the language of criminality. People talked about it as an alibi, or as a get-out-of-jail-free card that if people noted they'd gained weight, which people did to women but not to men, people out just sort of out in, in their world, 
And they would say, but I'm swimming the channel. So it became an alibi for that, rather than a heroic behavior. So the second and related exclusion that we can see is, is that um, heroic fatness is the preserve of those who are not fat at the start of the process, but gain weight to train. And instead, swimmers who already have sufficient or more than sufficient body fat to enable them to swim can never have heroically fat bodies, since being fat and getting fat are symbolically distinct. This is another reason why heroic fatness is much less available to women, because women are assumed to already carry more fat around their body, and it's often cited as a kind of biological advantage that women have fat around the torso and legs. For those who are characterized by their peers as already and therefore problematically fat, the physical comedy and homosocial celebration of heroic swimming, um, heroic swimming fatness functions not as a means of belonging, but instead as a, as a form of symbolic violence. So one day in Dover, a male swimmer who self-identified as, as lifelong fat and I were watching as a group of male swimmers loudly slapped and wobbled the recently acquired fat stomach of one of them. My friend commented quietly to me, it makes you wonder what they must think of me. My friend on the beach recognises his own status, and perhaps also mine, as the potential object of the men's affective play. For them, it is his body, or at least bodies like his, that evoke the disgust that underpins the fun of fake fatness. This highlights the extent to which heroic fatness is the domain of hegemonic masculinity rather than men per se, for whom the negotiation of the fat body in a fat phobic society has its own complexities. The celebratory playfulness that shores up heroic fatness, as with dramatic fat suits then, is always at the expense of real fat people, both men and women. Particularly male swimmers, and to a much lesser extent female swimmers, can step outside of this heroic um, non-heroic fat binary and still achieve social inclusion within the hegemonic group of heroically fat swimmers, um, but this is primarily through being able to align with other dimensions of, um, of sporting masculinity. Okay? And this is particularly through high performance. That if you are a very, very, if you are a very good swimmer, if you're very fast, or you can swim for a very long time, or you can swim in very cold water, that kind of compensates. It sort of it um, and sort of downgrades the problem of fat. But significantly, though, even in these cases, the fatness remains real. As a male UK swimmer noted about a shared acquaintance, I don't think of him as fat. He's just a really great swimmer. So by implication then, the fat can only be disregarded as long as he is still swimming well. Even from my own position, very far outside of the protective glow of high performance, a swimming acquaintance um, after my English Channel swim asked if I was planning to lose weight or do another swim. Non-swimming fatness, it appears, was not an acceptable option. Lebesco argues in relation to dramatic fat suits that the embrace of inauthenticity is revealing for what it tells us about the stability of fat-phobic anxieties. However, in spite of the entrenched nature of the understandings of fat upon which heroic fatness relies, it's also clear that these entrenched understandings cannot contain the embodied experience of swimming fat. Writing of the multiple masculinities in the surfing subculture, Belinda Wheaton suggests that for all of the, all the displays of laddish hegemonic masculinity that are very evident in that subculture, she also witnessed an ambivalent masculinity that emphasized camaraderie and support. A similar ambivalence can be seen in relation to fatness among many of the marathon swimmers I met. 
where the dominant framing of swimming fatness as an undesirable necessity gave way to more ambivalent experiences of fat sporting embodiment that can't be reduced to authentic or inauthentic binaries, opening up a much more differentiated account. So as one female swimmer, this is the, the top one, um, she identified as having been overweight for large parts of her life. And she says, my heart rate is really good, my resting heart rate is phenomenal, my blood pressure is low. Well, you know, you swim and swim and swim. I might be fat, noted another, but my body is amazing. Just look what it can do. So these stories are highly contingent and often open with confessions. I know I'm fat, but... Um, but they mark a changed awareness of the, what the fat sporting body could signify beyond constraining narratives of fatness as synonymous with ill health or moral failure, or of exercise as a path to weight loss. There's something else happening here. And this isn't simply a, a reflexive reevaluation of the facts of anti-obesity campaigns that you, you know, the idea that you can't be fat, uh, fit and fat. They're not just reevaluating that, but it's also an affective transformation that in turn opens up a less adversarial relationship with the body, often after years of fighting fat. So for example, UK swimmer Julie told me that she had weighed herself every day throughout her entire adult life, a practice which she stopped while gaining weight for a swim because she couldn't face seeing the rising numbers after years of self-monitoring. Post-swim, however, she looked back on this habitual weighing as what she described as a bit psycho and didn't return to her daily weigh-ins. Another UK swimmer, Melissa, highlighted the difference that swimming had made not just to behaviours like weighing, but also to her own experience of her body. So she says, I've been this fat before, unhappily so, very unhappily so, in a depressed state, hating my body, whereas now, you know, I'm ambivalent about losing it. It's far from a wholehearted embrace of fatness, but it's a far cry from both her former unhappy fatness and from the ideal type, heroic fatness. She also noted that she also noted the opportunity to eat freely, and this had raised a critical awareness of just how unhealthily obsessed was the word that she used. She would become about food when dieting. Another female swimmer spoke of the unexpected pleasure that she found in the solidity of a heavier body, in taking up space through size, and the unanticipated freedoms again of no longer obsessing over food. And there's a very strong gender dimension to this, um, since it is women who are the primary targets and consumers of the weight loss industry, and for whom these practices of self-surveillance, guilt and obsession uh, are a normalised part of um, femininity and they're much more likely to define their own bodies and to be defined by others in relation to fat. And even among those swimmers who were planning to lose weight after the season was over, the interviews and field notes are full of examples of newfound pleasures in the freedom of being able to eat without guilt or self-recrimination and of being perhaps in rather than against the fat body. And these can't simply be understood as playful transgression like the, the, the young men slapping their stomachs. As one female swimmer commented with surprise, it felt so good to be able to eat. After long swims, um, long training swims, hot drinks and easily digestible snacks such as sweets, cakes and biscuits circulate very freely. The post-swim sharing of food is also a time of mutual support. It's an opportunity to celebrate a good day in the water or commiserate with those who had a bad session. In the field notes, I record how liberating it is to see and be among, especially women, who are eating heartily and in public 
without that talk of constraint, oh, I really shouldn't, I'll be good tomorrow, Those, that kind of habitual talk among women. This pleasure in eating is undoubtedly facilitated through a trade-off with having swum. And so there was a case where we, we'd had to get out of the water an hour early during a long training swim, and one of my friends said to me, I won't be able to eat all of my cake now. So there is, a kind of, there is some calculation going on there. But nevertheless, it signals a much more ambivalent and less instrumental relationship with, fattening, with the fattening swimming body that's distinct from the determined inauthenticity of heroic fatness and the ostensibly health-oriented anti-obesity rhetorics. There's other things happening here. So to conclude, throughout the course of this research project, I never really found that resistant, politicized rendering of swimming fat of the kind that you find within fat studies. Um, but I think the research exposed the stark limitations to the fat kills rhetoric of the contemporary war on fat and unsettles those values. When fat bodies are so habitually made the object of effective transfer rather than its subject, the unexpected freedoms of guilt-free consumption the pleasures of bodily solidity and the liberation from shame-filled daily encounters with scales all signal a reorientation, however ambivalent, towards fat, constituting what Hardy describes as the new tissues of affective experience. In short, the materiality of a fat body that is experienced as amazing, and particularly when a woman says that, is very differently constituted to both the playfully wobbled body of the heroically fat, fake, uh, fake fat woman and the abjectly real fat body that is the target of the war on obesity. And so I think I'm kind of arguing for an analytical focus on these affective dimensions of fatness to kind of bring out some of the, the moral and ideological assumptions about fatness that kind of seep out in these emerging spaces between the entrenched certainties of the attack on fat. So in spite of the prevailing and unifying certainties of the war on obesity that fat kills, we can see that not all fat is equal that bioprene and the fat of moral failure are different. And this isn't just to suggest a, hier a hierarchy of more or less forgivable fatness, but rather that there are different kinds of fatness. The experience of fat has been shown here to be uneven and unpredictable, produced in interaction with, and always in relation to dominant values, but not determined by them. This endorses the insistence within fat studies that rather than simply debating truths about the relationship between fat and health, the moral dimensions of the war on obesity need to be kept very clearly in sight. Marathon swimming is a very minority sport, but the normative values that constitute it are also those of the wider social and cultural context within which it's practiced. Further, those same values are intensified and made visible by the anomalous sporting embodiment demanded by the sport itself. As such, even while seeming to disregard the norms of body size, composition and practice, marathon swimming speaks directly to those values in ways that challenge how we think about whose bodies count as good bodies and in what ways. Thank you.